We are concluding uh, this series on First and Second Peter and the life of Peter, uh, Follow, and this weekend the title of the message is Follow Until the End. Follow Until the End, a few verses from Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our, by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Uh, recently, I bumped into a moose and he didn't like me. I came face to face, more accurately, nose to nose with a moose or while up riding a, a, some four-wheelers, some ATVs up in the mountains, someone shouted, look, a moose. And so I stopped my four-wheeler, and I'd already passed it, because I'm not that observant, and so I reversed back, and sure enough, uh, there is this, this moose, you know, like doing the antler thing with the trees. I don't know what you call that, but I suppose you call it doing the antler thing with the trees. And so I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the moose, and um, I'm really quiet and respectful. I'm not making any stupid comments like, hey, moose, why the long face? Nothing like that. I'm <laughs> being good. And suddenly he looked at me, and he looked, he looked ticked. Moose are crazy. They'll, they'll charge a train. And, and he's, he looks at me, and, he, and I can see he's remembering the 4th of July. And... <laughs> and he, he starts to charge at me, and I felt led to get out of Dodge. So I, I, I gunned the four-wheeler, but I've forgotten that I'm in reverse, and he's coming. <laughs> and now I shoot back, and, and the moose is confused. He's like, I'm charging that guy. Now he's charging me. I forgot. I forget stuff all the time. I told you that. I forget my keys. How many do this? You, you lose your keys. Where's, where's my keys? Some of you are nudging each other right now and you forget your wallet, your sunglasses, your car keys. Sometimes I forget where I left the car. That's awkward. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I mislay my faith. I don't lose it. I just mislay it. Where, where'd it go? Um, it can be that we're bombarded by messages that occasionally make us feel like Believing is ridiculous. Messages that come in our culture. Grief can create a momentary loss and mugging when it comes to faith. I felt like that the day that I, I went to the funeral home and picked up the box of ashes that used to be my dad. And I'm carrying this box out and I, I put the box on the, the seat. Drivers driving over here, seat over here the way God arranged things. And, <laughs> and I, I put the box on the seat and I, I had this weird thought like, do I put the seat belt on the box? You know, it's weird. And that moment, ladies and gentlemen, the very thought that there could be resurrection, reunion in heaven, it all seemed ridiculous. And, and, and sometimes Christians feel like that because death seems very final. And we feel like, is, it, is there really going to be a hereafter? Don't feel guilty if you feel like that, because it's impossible for someone to live after death. But with God, all things are possible. 
but occasionally we, we forget. And sometimes it's more serious. Israel constantly forgot one of the indictments, the consistent indictments against the people of Israel. God repeatedly says, they, they forgot. Jeremiah the prophet laments, Jeremiah 18. He says, my people, God says, my people have forgotten me. And sometimes it's even worse because people deliberately forget. Peter picks up that idea in 2 Peter in this third chapter. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. Remember that following theme? Peter's saying that you can follow your own desires. And then he says, they deliberately forgot, deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being. You see, as he's writing this letter, it's, it's 35 to 40 years after the epic three-year period when Peter spent time with Jesus. And he, he's looking back. And, and in his letter, he's remembering some of the amazing moments, like the transfiguration, 2 Peter 1. He says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's remembering, but as he's remembering, he's looking forward too. You see, Jesus had told Peter how, he, how Peter was going to die. Can you imagine that? Jesus predicted that Peter would die a martyr's death. Not only that, he told him how he was going to die. He said, you'll stretch out your hands. In the ancient world, that meant crucifixion. I don't know that I'd want to know that information. Imagine if God said to you, do you want to know how long you've got? Do you want to know the nature of your dying? I'd say, I'd rather you keep that to yourself, thank you, particularly if it's going to be painful. For three decades or more, Peter lived on prophetic death row. Knowing what was ahead, surely he had to look back and remember what was. And he remembered too the calling that Jesus gave him. Come, follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. Twice in John 21 on that beach in Tabgar in Galilee. Twice Jesus had repeated that follow calling invitation. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, follow me over breakfast. And so Peter now has embedded that following theme into the letter that he writes over three decades later. So what can we learn from this final chapter of his two letters, written probably around a year. We don't know, but we, scholarship says probably around a year before his death, he wrote these words. Number one, number one, know that Jesus is coming back. Know that Jesus is coming back. Look at what Peter says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. And then later in the chapter, verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I'm thinking that the way things are now, the truth of the second coming of Jesus is kind of hard to get across to people for a couple of reasons. Number one, the first reason is we become pretty good at delaying dying. We know how to delay death. For some of us here, and I'm very conscious of it this morning, death is a very real reality 
the wonderful older gentleman who came up to me in this building last night and shared with me that just two weeks ago his wife passed. The Facebook message I received this morning from friends in England whose 12-year-old 12-year-old daughter went home to heaven this morning. For them, it's very real. I mentioned them to ask you to whisper a prayer for them. But we've kind of become good, most of us, at, at keeping death away. Did you know that in Roman times, the average life expectancy from birth, if you, if you actually survived birth, the average life expectancy in Roman times was 25 that's crazy. It's because of the high infant mortality. But if you did survive your, your early years, the average life expectancy for a Roman worker was 30. In medieval England, average life expectancy, 30. In America, in the year 1900, 1900, average life expectancy for a white man, 47. For a black male, because of social conditions, 33. Today in America, average life expectancy for men, 77, 81 for women. What's happened? We have pushed death back with technology and knowledge. And so death can seem very remote. The, the message of the second coming, it doesn't quite have that same cutting edge because we're not as familiar with death as previous cultures have been. Not only that, but the truth of the second coming has been ruined by second coming madness and rapture predictions. You know what I'm talking, how many know what I'm talking about? You know, people announce on the internet that Jesus is coming back on September or the whatever and the Christians like a bunch of lemmings hurtling over the cliff. Do I get the impression I'm, do I give the impression I'm a little frustrated by this? Yeah. Drives me crazy. Every yeah, it's, it may happen. No, no one's going to predict it. Why don't we get that? And I remember being paranoid and terrified by the, this idea of the second coming. And newly married to Kay, we'd go grocery shopping. Always a great source of ecstasy in my life. <laughs> and I couldn't find Kay in the grocery store, and I'd be like. She's been taken. So how many know what I'm talking about here? And, and I've been left behind. Only to find her two minutes later in the frozen food section. What a joyous reunion that was. Peter wants us to know it's gonna happen. Jesus is coming again. Peter knew that if Jesus said it, it would happen. There's gonna be a rooster crowing, Peter. Oh yeah, right, that happened. But this is not the stuff of speculation and airplanes falling out of the sky. And in the event of the rapture, this car will be driverless. Rather, it is the words of comfort for the funeral home or the memorial service or the graveside. It is the truth that the king is coming. And the church will go out to greet him. This is the glorious hope. And I want to slow down for a moment and talk to those of you who find yourself right now walking in the valley of the shadow. And I pray 
that the Holy Spirit will comfort and strengthen your heart with this truth that is true. Christ is coming again. Why don't we give that one more try? Christ is coming again. Better. Number two. Number two, be patient in faith. Be patient in faith. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, Peter says. Do not forget this one thing. With the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter's, Peter's saying, look, God's patient, so be patient. We're not terribly patient these days, are we? Does anyone remember dial-up computer stuff? I sense pain even as I mention it. You remember you'd, you had to get online and, and you'd, 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 it'd take you about five minutes and the computer made these kind of techno-vomiting sounds. And, and, and you'd be like... Phew. And now, if your internet's running a bit slow, you know, you're like... Phew. Things running slow. What am I gonna, I'm never going to get back those three seconds. We don't like to wait. Christians are people who wait. The Welsh poet R.S. Thomas, he said the meaning is in the waiting. But we're a culture that doesn't like to wait. Don't wait, just put it on the card. Don't wait for marriage. That's, that's the idea. Pilate says what is truth, but he didn't wait for the answer. Advent is about waiting. It's about the building of attention, of expectation. Be patient. That calls for endurance. Yesterday I was exercising and I, and I hate it. I hate it. Just loathe it. Hate it. I start running and my brain says, stop. My brain says, don't be silly. Lie down on the ground now. Order pizza. They'll bring it to you. Sometimes Christianity is about waiting and it's about endurance. It's not always about being happy. Some of us don't feel happy in faith and you feel like you're weird. It's okay to not feel it. I've told, I've told you endless times, forgive me, but when I became a Christian, we used to sing songs. We had to, we had to be happy all the time. It drove me crazy. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I am H-A-P-P-Y. See that coordination there? That was kind of good. Another great theological classic was, was it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. No, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. If you pack up all your troubles, then they'll vanish like a bubble. If you only take the trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. It's enough to make you V-O-M-I-T. Christianity is not just about making us happy. Sometimes we're not. Ask Peter. He's heading for a cross. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. <laughs> if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. There is joy, there is peace, there is purpose, there is wholesome fun. But maybe you're not feeling great in your faith. And I want to say it's okay not to feel it. 
Because not feeling it doesn't make it less true. And I just have a sense that for some people here, maybe in this auditorium, maybe in traditions, I can hear someone almost going, that's a relief. Be patient in faith. Thirdly, thirdly, walk in genuine holiness. Walk in genuine holiness. Peter asks a rhetorical question. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And then later in the chapter, he says, look at this, make every effort. It's one of Peter's themes, by the way. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Look at this verse, Romans 12 and verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Did you know that we Christians are called to be people who hate? You say, what? Yeah. We are called to be people who hate sin, who hate evil. You know why? Because we know of its devastating effects. That's difficult. Again, I, I don't want to set up this us and our culture thing too much, but I've noticed that our culture tends to define love as having no component of morality. It's soft on evil. And if you say that's wrong, even because you're loving, you must be a bigot now, mustn't you? The new religion is liberal fundamentalism that worships the God of tolerance. The thing is this. The one thing we won't tolerate is you disagreeing with the consensus opinion. While worshipping at the bovine godette of tolerance, we end up becoming intolerant and you're not allowed to step out of the crowd that marches in step with a consensus. There'll be big trouble. But the Christian is called to Hate evil. We know that evil's true. We know it exists. G.K. Chesterton said certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. You don't have to have faith to know that sin is. But we know the truth about sin. It's catastrophic. It's not liberating. It's catastrophic. It's a sobering example, an extreme one, but I want to use it. The Nazis were not content to ferry millions of Jews to the gaping crematoria. But they killed them before they killed them. With what one writer describes as excremental assault. Do you know what they did? They consistently ensured that whatever was cherished would be degraded. A prisoner in Auschwitz was never addressed by name, but referred to by a number. The lack of sanitation meant that his or her stench would prevent really being known. And Jewishness was specifically fouled. The Nazis would make the women take their prayer shawls, which were considered holy, and they made them use them as underwear. 
and because of the prevalence of diarrhea in the camps, that meant that every day these Jewish women soiled that which they viewed as holy. They made them take their prayer shawls and line their shoes with them so that in a culture, in a, in a religion that said, take off your shoes for this is holy ground, they made them regularly trample underfoot that which was holy. They killed them before they killed them. And that is what sin does. It isn't liberating, just do it. I'm really living. No. We hate sin because we see that it causes people to look down with shame. It robs us of our dignity. Thank God, because in the midst of the catastrophe of sin, I love what Tolkien said. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, the fantasy writer, he invented a word his word was eucatastrophe. It was a combination of Eucharist and catastrophe. And he said that the incarnation of Jesus was a, a eucatastrophe, a glorious upheaval, a breaking into our world to deal with the problem of sin. Are we, are we making every effort? Are we, are we passive about it? In the, the book, uh, uh, A Berlin Diary, Christopher Isherwood's book, he speaks about just being passive about life. He says, I am a camera with its shutter open, quite passive, recording, not thinking. Christians, we, we can't do life like that. We, we have to engage choices, make every effort to be holy. This is not just sweat. This is not just try harder. No, because Christ has come and his spirit works within us. But, but here's a question. Are, are there... Are there areas of our lives that we need to note and say, God, where do I particularly need to make every effort? And if we don't know the answer to that question, why not ask the question of the Lord today and look out for the answer in the unfolding week? God, where are areas of my life where I need to be especially diligent? Give special attention. Watch out for that. They do risk assessments on buildings and companies and governments. Why don't we do a, why don't we do a risk assessment on us and make every effort? Number four. Number four is keep growing in God. Keep growing in God. Peter says, but grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Peter grew. Pastor Darry is right. I've watched every message in this series. And he's right. Peter did some crazy, laughable things. He's one of the reasons why he's, he's for most of us, he's our favorite character apart from Jesus. He's, he kind of does goofy stuff and you have to laugh at him. But don't trap him in that place because he grew. He became a brilliant theologian and thinker and leader. He is really the source of the gospel of Mark. It's believed that Mark took Peter's account and created the gospel. He's amazing. He, he grew. He grew. Some of you know that I'm a granddad, and I really try and hold back on the granddad stuff because it gets irritating after a while. I, I know that because we grandparents. How many are grandparents here? 
We're obsessed people and, you know, it gets boring, I know, but let me just bore you for a moment. Indulge me. A few weeks ago, I was in England and Stanley, Stanley's eight now. He said, Granddad, I'd like to have a time machine for Christmas. I said, okay. I said, I haven't seen that at Walmart, but that'd be awkward. So what would you do? He said, I'd, he said, I'd go back in time and I'd meet famous characters in history. I said, you know, like who? He said, you know, like Henry VIII, I could meet him and pick up a few tips about marriage. You know, that would be interesting. <laughs> and he mentioned a few others. And I said, I said if you had a time machine, would you, would you go back 2,000 years and go to Galilee and meet Jesus and see some of his earthly ministry? He said, granddad, I would. And he said, if I bumped into him, I'd tell him that you are one of his greatest fans. <laughs> I'd hope for that to be a true accolade. There are, there are aspirations in my heart to be a better fan and follower of Jesus. In Stanley's and Alex's bedroom, you walk in and on the door frame, there are pencil marks. You know what those are, don't you? Those are, those are, this is how tall they were at this age. The thing is, you can measure their growth very easily. How do we measure our growth? Because we need to keep growing in God. Well, Peter points us to grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Grace and truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter talks all about grace. The grace of God, the favor of God. Are we growing in understanding and appreciating God's grace and passing it around? Are we growing in understanding of the truth? You ever met Christians? They know stuff, but they're not very gracious. I remember Mr. Markham. I've told you about him before. When I was 22, I was a senior pastor. Kay and I planted a church. And I'm 22. I'm a senior pastor and Mr. Markham is 80, and he's been walking with Jesus for like three times as many years as I've been on the planet. He knows stuff. And here I am at 22 preaching, telling him and his lovely wife how they should live their lives. And he'd sit there, and he'd try and encourage, amen, pa amen, pastor, amen, praise the Lord, he'd say. So gracious. He used to fall asleep, too. But even when he fell asleep, he was trying to, he, he tried to redeem that, you know, so he'd snore real loud. I don't mind people falling asleep, you know, but snoring's rude. And it was really loud. It was like someone was running a chainsaw in the building. Like, and, it, and everyone in our little church, they would get kind of excited. They needed to get out more because they'd go like, Mr. Markham's snoring. And then what happened is he'd wake up and shout something encouraging out, but he didn't know what I just said. He just wake up and shout something out. So one day I was preaching on spiritual warfare. He's fast asleep. Peace of God was all over him. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting excited. I said, the devil is defeated. And he woke up and shouted out, bless his lovely name. <laughs> Why did he do that? Because he's full of grace. I used to go visit him and I'd pray for them. I'd go visit them in their home and I'd pray. And then they'd say, Pastor, could we pray for you? And he'd pray this beautiful prayer and then I'd get up to leave and he'd give me a hug and he'd always just give me a kiss on the cheek. Pastor, we love you. We believe in you. 
give me a kiss on the cheek. Don't come and do that today. It's not a general thing I'm introducing here. Full of grace and truth. Are we growing? Well, finally this. Whatever comes, whatever comes, live for and with Jesus. You see, 30 years earlier, that breakfast had happened where Jesus told Peter what was going to happen. Look at it. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John clarifies this. He says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And Peter is able to end his letter 35, 40 years later after hearing that. He says these words, to him be glory both now and forever. Let me say this. You can only face the gallows if your last word is forever. And your last word, my last word, it can be forever. What happened? Clement of Rome, one of the early church fathers, writing in AD 96, mentions Peter's martyrdom. Writing in AD 212, Tertullian affirms that Peter was bound to a cross and on that day he was dressed by someone else. The idea that Peter was crucified upside down doesn't have a lot of historical support. What we do know is that he was crucified. But he was able to walk towards that and follow all the way because of forever. When I was baptized in water, I was 17. It was an embarrassing night. We had to share our little testimonies and I decided to make mine into a song. And the song was truly hideous. I sang my song and then I went down into the tank and I'm the guy who charges mooses in reverse. Couldn't even get my baptism right. When I went under the water, I kicked my legs up in the air, drenched the front three, three rows. There's all these elderly blue rinse ladies looking like drowned rats, but still smiling, bless their hearts. And as I came up out of the water, they sang a song. Follow, follow. I will follow Jesus. Everywhere, anywhere, I will follow on. Follow, follow, I will follow Jesus. I will follow on. Peter could sing that song. He did it. He did it. May your heart be comforted if death has visited with the truth that Christ is coming again. 
And may every one of us follow until the end. And the people said, Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, because you went all the way for us. You paid the price. And your invitation to us is to follow. Would you show us where we need to make every effort? Maybe in this moment of prayer, you might ask the question, the question I've been asking God about myself. Where do I need to make special effort, be particularly diligent? Would you show us? Would you comfort your people with the truth of your coming? And would you enable us to be people for whom it is true that whatever comes, we will follow until the end. We agree together in Jesus' name. Amen.